Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Episode 2, Anarchist. I'm using the realm of Anarchist as an introduction to the world below the war in the heavens, mostly because it's irresistible. Nearly 2,000 years old, and ruled by the same family, more or less, for all that time, it has a history of strife, betrayals, false alliances, glorious triumphs, dazzling artistic achievements, humane advances, dark treachery, petty personal vendettas, and extraordinary magical phenomena, all supported, encouraged, and enabled by the vast riches that have come from the most prodigious heavenfall in the history of the world below. Geography. Let's get some idea of where Anarchist actually is in the world below. It's in the southeast of the continent, across the strait that separates the mainland from the excitable island folk of Jellox. The entire region has plenty of fertile farmland across most of the realm, and it's a prime producer of wool, grain and vegetable crops. As well as being the foremost supplier of magical scales, Anarchist is a major food source, a food bowl in many ways. The capital city, Anarchist, isn't on the coast. It's in the Central Plains region, close to the Gefo River. It has a river port, Beacon, which is a few leagues away, and it has a coastal port, Miro, where the Gefo meets the sea. Anarchist has mountains in the northeast, the tail end of the major mountain range that runs right along the eastern side of the continent. The mountains are high enough for there to be snow on the highest peaks most of the year. The western side of the state is even desert and arid regions. Another large river, the Inman, provides much of the nominal and defensible north and west border of Anarchist as it runs from high in the mountain range and flows west and southwest to meet the sea in the wilderness near Anaquis's closest westerly neighbour, Tinland. The Gefo is a major branch of this river. Climate, a quick snapshot. The climate across Anaquis is mostly what we'd call Mediterranean. Coolish winters, extremely rare snow throughout, except on those aforementioned mountains. Hot summers, quite extremely so in the far northwest, where long, arid stretches are common. The founding of Anarchist. The Heavenfall, the dead god himself, was discovered by Eucantha Anarchist, hereafter known as Eucantha I, in the year 70. With her band of followers, she formed a defensive settlement around the Heavenfall, as was the norm, and this grew into the city and the state we know today. Eucantha named the new realm after herself, which tells you something about her. Not lacking in self-belief, Eucantha Anarchist. Now it's time for a quick historical overview. And here's where I'll try to reduce nearly 2,000 years of Anarchist history into easily digestible chunks. 
I'll be taking each of the Anarchistian monarchs one by one and looking at them in more detail in later episodes. But let's settle right now for the broadest of sweeps to help you establish some context. I've come up with names for each of these pretty much accepted periods of Anarchistian history, and I think they're better than the sometimes drab ones that academics have come up with. And I'm happy with that, even though one Anarchist historian has challenged me to a cage fight over one of my designations. First up, we have the Foundation Period, from 70 to 339, where we start at the very beginning. An example monarch here is Eucantha the first, the founder, of course. The second period I've denoted as the nightmare years, 339 to 428. Basically, Anarchistians say we don't talk about those times, so I can't wait to dive in. Example monarch, Zalman the Vicious. Nasty guy, great hair. Third period is Restoration 1 and Invasions, 429 to 515. The overwhelming tenor here was, let's forgive and forget, okay? Those nightmare years, who can remember them? So what if your whole family, including pets, were slaughtered? An example monarch that I've chosen there is Iona I, and she constructed the Serpent Stairs, a major architectural feature of the palace. Period four is the Internecine Wars, 515 to 606. Yeah, families can't live with them, can't forge an alliance with the barbarian kingdom and usurp them. Example monarch, Ofo the Bungler. I mean, how could I go past him with a name like that? The fifth period is Restoration 2, Return of the Restoration, 606, 687. And it's like everybody looked at each other and said, come on, I was only joking when I stabbed you in the back. Example monarch here is Actian I. He painted the large mural in the mural room single-handedly. And I mean that literally. He lost the other hand in a battle in the northeast mountains. Period six is expansion, empire building, 687 to 985. And it's like here they're going, bigger is better, right? Example monarch, Blees II. She expanded the port at Miro, including extensive fortifications. Boring but successful. Period 7 is contraction. After expansion comes contraction. Back to core business. 985 to 1131. The example monarch here is Daimon VI. And I've chosen him because there is one rather cryptic inscription carved over the lintel of a door in one of the less used parts of the palace. And all the inscription says is Daimon VI. Not a very good diamond. Period 8, interlopers, 1131 to 1168. Yeah, yeah. Where did they come from? Who are they? What did they do with my crown? Example monarch, Calix I, who was so cunning, he sold the town of Beacon to a group of merchants twice. Same group of merchants. Period 9, restoration 3, 1168 to 1411. Third time's the charm, right? Example monarch, Rhea V. All anarchists are good-looking. They've just got great genes. But she was one of the most beautiful of all anarchistian monarchs. And she was nice. Didn't have a little toe on one foot, though, so it goes to show that no one's perfect. 
Period 10, golden years, 1411 to 1667. Golden years, whoop, 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 golden years, whoop, whoop, whoop. Example monarch, Misty I. She lost an arm in an ill-advised attempt to shape hot iron magically. And whether this was the reason why she's the last magical adept to sit on the throne, not sure. It's arguable. Period 11th is the partnership monarchy period, which is 1667 to the present. Uh, togetherness is monarchiness or something. Sendia and Laws are the current monarchs. Stability, jobs, security is their motto. Again, fairly pedestrian, but a lot of people very happy with a reign that emphasises stability, jobs and security. Anarchist Today I think it's pretty fair to say that Anarchist is the preeminent realm on the continent, socially, culturally, economically, militarily. The capital Anarchist is made up of the stronghold, and the stronghold is that the original area, the oldest part of the city, it includes the castle, which has been much extended, over the hypogeum. Now, the hypogeum, I'll get to that in a moment, but that is the core of the power of Anarchist. Other official buildings inside the stronghold, inside the walls of the stronghold, include the Library of Souls, the barracks of the Royal Guard, the Royal Temple, and the 19 Fountains of Ruin II. Loved his fountains, did Ruin II. And outside the stronghold is the other part of the capital city, and that is Lowtown. Lowtown just grew around the walls as people flocked to share the riches of the heaven fall. It's where the ordinary folk live. Let's talk about the hypogeum. The hypogeum is one of the most remarkable aspects of Anarchist. And let's face it, Anarchist has lots of remarkable aspects. In some ways, it is the heart of the power of Anarchist, because the hypogeum houses the body of the dead god. That's what the word means, a chamber or a structure that houses remains. Once Eucanthor Anarchist and her band of adventurers discovered the site of the dead god, the hypogeum was built over the top of it to protect it, and not just from the elements, from those who would seek to take it away or claim it for themselves. This was a monumental undertaking, and it needed someone who was an architectural genius to manage it. Fortunately for Anarchist, and for those of us who are interested in juicy history, Eucantha Anarchist wasn't just a charismatic leader, a daring adventurer, and, from some accounts, an excellent juggler. She was a genius-level architect and engineer. With her vision and practicality, she decided that the best way with the tools at hand was to construct a series of arches over the prone body of the dead god, and then to fashion this into a barrel vault. And what a barrel vault! This initial structure spanned 40 metres and ended up being 500 metres long to shelter the dead god from head to foot. I repeat, 500 metres. And Eucantha Anarchist being Eucantha Anarchist, this structure had a dual purpose, for it wasn't simply the beginning of a vast protective edifice. It was going to be the foundations for a castle built on top of it. 
since one of the best ways to protect the body of a dead god was to return it to the earth that had enfolded it for millennia. All of this building was taking place inside the stockade, the palisade that had been thrown up around the site of the Heavenfall, and a stream of workers flocked in response to Yucantha Anarchist's summons, where she used all of the contacts she'd built up over the years for those who would be loyal defenders of the Heavenfall, her proto-army, but also masons, carpenters, buildings of all sort, who weren't only excited by the promised riches, but more than a few were keen simply to work with Yucantha Anarchist. Such was her reputation even at this early age. It took many years, but more barrel vaults were added to this central initial vault, this initial aisle. Essentially, they added wings on either side, and floors were built on top of these so that the hypogeum, as well as hosting the body of the dead god and holding up the castle that was built on top of it, it became a vast underground complex of workshops, offices, foundries, and even classrooms. Officially, the hypogeum is under the shared authority of the crown and the temple. Very early on, the temple exerted its right to authorise and certify all scales removed from the body of the dead god, and as such, insisted on a place in the hypogeum. And despite some tension and disagreements over the centuries, this continues today. At times, it seemed as if the temple has assumed that it is the sole agency of note in the hypogeum. But at other times, the crown has reduced the temple's influence to a minimum. Back and forth, this power play has gone with much intrigue on both sides. The Library of Souls is another important building within the walls of the stronghold. It's a semi-monastic institution dedicated to keeping and maintaining the soul cylinders. It also has some other library functions, including the keeping of the annals. And aside about these soul cylinders, these extraordinary objects have a strong claim to being the reason why the Anaquistian dynasty has lasted so long. They're crafted out of the most puissant scales by the foremost fabricators of the day, and they're readied for the deathbed of each monarch. The soul cylinder is placed under the back of their neck, and as the queen or king dies, it captures their, their essence, if you will. The exact nature of this is highly secret, but it's thought to be an impressionistic rendering of each monarch's memories and experiences. None of their experience gained during their reign is lost. These cylinders are carefully kept in the most revered wing of the Library of Souls and tended by dedicated librarians, which means mostly careful dusting. But they're not simply stored When each member of each royal family reaches the age of 16, and after much thoughtful study, they choose one of their ancestors, and in the ceremony of imparting, they are brought the nominated cylinder and they absorb the essence. This immediately grants them a lifetime of experience in governing, diplomacy, warfare, or hundreds of other skills, depending on which ancestor they chose. This tradition has been of incalculable benefit to generations of anarchists. 
The current monarchs are Queen Sindia and King Laws, the fourth partnership monarchy since the custom began with Yemen II and Wenkantia III in 1667. The royal family, the children of Sindia and Laws, are the actual heirs to the land of the dead god. The oldest is Vita, who's 25. Her colours are black and white. Another aside, each member of a royal family gets to choose a combination of colours, a pairing of colours, which are then used for uniforms of their household and also used for the individual to display in whichever way they choose. The second oldest is Galena, she's 23, her colours are blue and brown. Otho follows, 21, he has black and grey. Then there's Philo, who's 19, and he has a very stylish green and silver combination. Iona is 17, she has blue and red, and coming right down the bottom end, the babies of the family are Rhea and Actian. They're twins. Rhea's colours are yellow and black, and Actian's colours are red and yellow. They're 16, Rhea and Actian. Oh, the palace household staff have muted purple as their colour. So if you see anybody about wearing muted purple in the palace, yep, they're the household staff. Since I've raised, I've given you some idea of the royal family, uh, it's probably worthwhile looking at this business of succession in Anarchist. Who gets to be the monarch when the old monarch dies or abdicates? Well, since the earliest days, the Anarchist family has had no truck with primogeniture and certainly none with patrilineality, which is a word that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Now, the monarchs, the succeeding monarchs, the heirs have to be chosen and that's ended up in it being something like Survivor, where the heirs have to outwit, outplay and outlast their siblings in order to be anointed by the reigning monarch or monarchs. Now, simply slaughtering all one's siblings is considered bad form, but that hasn't stopped it happening in the past. When Cantia II, back in the 700s, poisoned all her brothers and sisters, one by one, all the time diverting suspicion to foreign influences. But this means that even young royal heirs have to be on guard, while also putting their best foot forward if they have any ambition at all. And it appears as if anarchists have a very active ambition gene, because just about every member of every anarchist royal family ever has had their eye on the prize. And it's ended up in it being a free-for-all, no holds barred, lots of violence, scheming, conspiracies, alliances, betrayals, passions of all sort, heightened in a way that makes day-to-day life Extremely fraught, but very interesting. First, a word about our primary sources. To give you some idea of where all of this information about Anarchist and the world below, the war in the heavens, has come from. And of course, we base a fair bit of our knowledge of Ecanther Anarchist and every monarch, on the annals, the official record of each ruler's reign, the volumes of which are kept in the Library of Souls. They're highly authorised. I mean, each monarch gets to choose their analyst, their historian. To a greater or lesser extent, 
These annals are all hagiographic, painting the monarch in the best light possible. Still, you can't ignore them. Now, others I've used include Escates, who wrote The Times. She's a second century female contemporary of Eucantha, and The Times is pretty solid, even if it does have a pro-Eucantha bias. Now, some volumes have been lost of The Times, and it would be wonderful if one day someone in a far-off temple or a library or a palace discovered jammed in the wrong place in their shelves the lost volumes. It would make such a difference to our knowledge of some of these monarchs. For an alternative and highly entertaining view of these early monarchs, you really have to dip into Velmon, who wrote The Truth in the early 3rd century. It's a highly salacious treatment of the lives of the first five monarchs of Anarchist, some of which could be based on first-hand accounts. You have to take his stories not just with a grain of salt, but with huge bucket loads of salt. I've also used the classic On Governments by Megara, the 4th century philosophical text, because she refers to individual early monarchs to make her points about the best forms of governments. And she gives examples of decisions, good and bad, with dates. So very, very useful. And finally, in our primary sources, uh, there's Zofro, Pastoral Reflections. Now, this was written in the 3rd century. We don't know a lot about Zofro, except that he wrote a really long, really obtuse allegorical poem that people are still trying to work out who represents who. As well as these primary textual sources, we've got fragments, we've got diaries, and plenty of inscriptions from around the place. Oh, and coins. Coins are wonderful for looking at portraits and turning them over and discovering a few dates. There's not a monarch who hasn't loved the idea of putting their head on a gold coin. Secondary sources, that means things like uh, Dromka's weighty and magisterial The Monarchs of Anarchist. 17th century text, but it's still authoritative, if extremely conservative. And we also have temple texts and many popular histories that followed the publishing boom after the temple's acceptance of the printing press 150 years or so ago. Currency in Anarchist Since Anarchist is the economic powerhouse of the world below, thanks to the immense riches granted by the heavenfall, it's probably a good idea to get down to the nitty-gritty of commerce in this prosperous realm. And that means we start with Luca, Mula, Spondulix, those lovely clanking bits of loose change. Money. Because of its preeminent position financially, Anarchist currency has become the de facto default across the continent of the world below. Other realms have their own coins, of course, but Anarchist currency is accepted everywhere. The Anarchist coinage has been systematised for a thousand years and is easy to come to terms with, even if it has had variations over time, often due to the whim of whatever reigning monarch is reigning. The base coin is the copper minimum. 100 of them is equal to a silver punch, the name of which is a hangover from the early days when all silver coins were crude discs punched with a variety of patterns and symbols. 
100 silver punches equal the gold coin, which is called a sun, and always has a sun on the reverse side, stylized in various ways. The obverse, of course, features the head of the reigning monarch. Since a monarch has the final approval, their representation could be said to be idealised, but surely not. Over the centuries, many other coins have been struck to fill the gap between these major coins, which makes sense because carrying 90 copper minims to pay a minor bill isn't exactly ideal. Lots of these fall in and out of circulation. That's the coinage that's endured for more than a thousand years. It's practical, efficient and widely understood. Monarchs have, by and large, endorsed it, apart from the notable exception of Rhea IV, 1228 to 1264, who wanted to reform the coinage along a base 12 system, of all things. Uh, That means 12 coppers to a silver and 144 silvers to a gold. Uh, She claimed that the base 12 arithmetic was much more natural and flexible than base 10, 12 having so many more factors. But universal confusion and derision made this experiment short-lived, whereupon all Rhea's coins were recalled and melted down and the system returned to its traditional arrangement. The golden sun on the reverse of Rhea IV's golden coin is notable, however, for its frowning demeanour and has gone down in history as the grumpy sun. In this Anaquist Economics 101 session, however, coins are one thing, But what's probably more useful to get a handle on is transactions. I mean, what's a a silver punch actually worth? What could it buy? And here's where I like to use the loaf of bread comparison. We all know how much a loaf of bread costs, how much of our income needs to be handed over to get one, and if you don't, you're either really rich or blithe and removed from the nuts and bolts of daily life. So let's look at the Anarchist comparison. In the Anarchist of today, in this reign of Queen Cindy and King Laws, a standard, ordinary, easily purchased loaf of bread costs around half a silver punch. Less if you're a good haggler. Half a punch, or 50 copper minims. If we level this up, the yearly income for a trained, expert artisan, experienced notary or reasonably high government official is 30,000 times this. You can do the maths to make this work in our world, but here's the equation for you. The price of a loaf of bread times 30,000. Okay, is, is that working for you? One last helpful point for your financial commercial orientation. The annual income for your expert artisan, experienced notary or reasonably high government official is around the going price for a medium-priced scale, say, a modest plain carnelian of middling size and useful puissance. Precious things, Scales. And that's it for our introduction to Anarchist, episode two in The World Below, The War in the Heavens. Next episode, the semi-legendary founder of Anarchist, Eucantha the first, Eucantha Anarchist herself. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. 
If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.